Hello and welcome to the 19th episode of the Racing with Rob and Roller podcast. It is September 24th and we are coming at you live for us, pre-recorded for you. Today, Josh and I are recording our podcast from different locations, so please bear with us as we sort through the fun of Discord and recording through Discord. Uh, but as always, you could find both Josh and I on Twitter. Josh can be found at Roller underscore zero one. That's at R O L L E R underscore zero one, and I am at R Peters thirty three at R P E E T E R S thirty three. Uh, and in addition, don't forget that you can also tweet the show at Robin Roller, spelled just like it sounds, and interact with us and ask us questions that we will answer on the show now. Because again, we're doing this via Discord, so we all both have our computers pulled up in front of us instead of having our phones. Unlike the last point. But uh, you can use that, the hashtag AskRobinRoller to interact with us and ask questions that we can answer on the show. So with all that out, nice housekeeping out of the way, let's jump in real quick here to the first, uh, to the first real big event of the weekend, which was the NASCAR Xfinity Series on Friday. Uh, uh, they were at Richmond. This was their playoff opener. Uh, Christopher Bell dominated another Xfinity race, Series race, but unlike last week, he was unable to win the Go Bowling 250 on Friday night. However, um, wait, never mind. <laughs> I'm reading this the wrong way. Christopher <laughs> Bell dominates another Xfinity Series race, but unlike last week, he was actually able to win this race. Sorry. Uh, he was actually able to win the Go Bowling 250 on Friday night. Christopher Bell locks himself into the next round of the playoffs and can simply relax at the Charlotte Roval and at Dover. He also gathered seven additional playoff points to start the round of eight. Uh, and so for me, and the reason why I was so confused when I, when I stated, <laughs> I stated that was because, uh, I definitely missed, missed, uh, the broadcast on, on Saturday. Uh, it was unfortunate. I didn't want to miss the race, but, uh, you know, Hey man, I, I got, I got, uh, work to do, uh, down there at the newspaper. So we, they, they need me pretty bad down there. So, um, but, uh, the playoffs have always seemed to give drivers a rough go, especially John Hunter Nemechek was never able to turn a qualifying lap. And he had to start at the back of the pack, as did Justin Allgaier, someone who I picked to go to the final four. Uh, he he ha- his team had to go to the rear after uh, running over a generator key, or they had to run over a a, a tire, r- change a tire. Excuse me. Uh, I am having a rough time of 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 going of this. Josh, uh, when did you go go ahead and and uh, explain to us a little bit more about the Xfinity Series race on Friday night? Yeah, so it was just nuts uh as far as just racing for second uh but it was i was gonna pretty, say nuts because I, I had heard different yeah. things about that yeah it was it, i feel like christopher bell was laying back in doing some i guess what what the term might be thrown around is rear view driving like he'd just be really hanging back and then okay they're getting too close or enough time enough laps have passed by let's go ahead and take off um christopher bell was able to kind of mount a charge a little bit but it, I think it was just more so he, Bell laying back, and then he used up a step, and he finished third uh, behind Austin Sendrick, who got around him in the last few laps, which um, I didn't notice until after the race was over because uh, they were showing some other battles on the – NBC was showing some other battles on the track. Um, Justin Haley, here's an interesting thing, too. And this can only happen at certain pit stalls at certain tracks because Justin Haley was busted for too many men over the wall when he when a uh, crew member of his stepped over the white line on the garage entrance. So 
he wasn't actually over the wall. He put his foot on the uh, line and boom, too many men of the wall. And he had to see it go to the back and he did not recover. Finished 17th on the day and he didn't have the best car to begin with. He had about a top 10 car, but he wasn't able to, to even get, get back up there. He just was too far back and it was pretty difficult to pass i think in general for certain uh, for certain drivers uh on friday night yeah that's uh, what it really looked like it looked like there was a lot of it looked like it was very difficult to to pass uh yeah. which is always never something you want to see at a short track i mean you what you want to see especially like a two groove racetrack like like richmond it's it, it's it's a track that you want to see passing on and it just seemed like it was just hard for anybody to make anything happen yeah um, but I'll tell you some guys who, who were able to race. Ryan Sieg was able to race his way up a little bit and running up front for a little bit. Uh was even in the top five. Um, but he fell back, finished uh twelfth. I was unfortunate to see a good good run from that team. Um Tyler Reddick started up uh got up front a little bit, then fell back, and then he wound up tenth. Um Harrison Burton, though, this guy's impressing. I don't think he's just impressing me and, and you, but I think he's impressing a lot of people. And, you know, Christopher Bell, uh, you know, kind of some breaking news right before we went live. He will be moving on, as confirmed, the worst cup secret to the 95 in the Cup Series next year for Levine Family Racing. Um, I think Harrison Burton's one of those guys who is going to be looked at to take over that 20 car. And in the four races he's done this year, he's ran in the top 10 um, in a car he's obviously not very familiar with. Granted, it is Joe Gibbs, but he's running a car and he's beating guys who are in these cars regularly. And he was regularly beating Brandon Jones, which, by the way, he did do uh, la- uh, on Friday night. Brandon Jones finished eleventh. Um, so yeah, it was a uh, it was it was an interesting race for sure. But it was one where like, oh crap, something something amazing happened. No, uh, it was probably one of the more boring races of the year, but. Uh, we've had a good run of good Xfinity series races. This is bound to happen at some point. Um, I kind of, I'll bring it up now and I was going to bring it up for the cup when we talked about the cup series, but I just didn't see a lot of rubber being laid down. And I, and I wonder what uh, the, what the teams thought about that. And uh, you know, if they thought, you know, they're just, the grooves weren't coming in in time. And even after 360 laps in the cup series, I just didn't see the track rubbering in. Like I think, it should. So, um, you know, it's kind of reviewing the playoffs here for the Xfinity series. Um, you know, they're going to the Roval and anything can happen there. Um, so Bell's obviously moving on. Custer's plus 60. Reddick is plus 38. I mean, Custer, he walks away with a really good finish. He doesn't have to worry about Dover. Same thing for Reddick. Cindric's th- plus 34. Allgaier's plus 21. Annette is plus 18. Briscoe's plus 17. And Graxon is plus 15. So below the cutoff line, we got Brandon Jones, who's minus 15, who, according to Front Stretch, is going to be return, returning to Joe Gibbs Racing uh, next year. Um, Sieg's minus 19. Haley is minus 20. And Dimacek is minus 21. Um, so being that far below on going to the Roval has to be a little scary for some of those Xfinity Series drivers. Oh, I agree. I mean, the Roval is going to be a challenge, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, especially when, you know, it, th- that's the reason why the Roval exists. It's because it's supposed to be a challenge to a lot of the drivers that, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be an easy, uh, an easy round for them. Uh, especially the first round, it, you, you kind of weed out, you know, a lot of the guys that got there on luck. And, uh, you know, I think that it, 
some guys are going to have to have some pretty heroic performances because a bad finish at the Roval is pretty much just going to eliminate them, especially those guys down at the cut line. You know, it's just going to completely eliminate them from any conversation of, of the championship. Uh, you know, a guy like John Hunter Nemechek, you know, he's got quite a bit of points to make up uh, to, in order to, to, you know, have a safety net. Uh, and uh, he's, he's pretty much just going to have to win. I mean, there's no way to way around it. He's going to have to win. Justin Haley's going to have to win. Uh, Ryan Sieg's going to have to win. Brandon Jones, though, he he might barely be safe. But even then, I mean, he's he's got over ten. Um, he's got over ten uh, ten points that he's got. He can make up to to Gregson, and I just don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, uh, anytime gonna, soon. Yeah, and I think the, the here's the thing that I worry about. Like when I look. at you know, we talk about who's going to be in the, the championship four. Cindric ran really well at the Roval last year. And the only thing that's changed about this track is the chicane on the backstretch for for uh, for this year compared to last year. It's going to be definitely slower. It's going to slow the lap times down. It's going to provide a, a, a good passing opportunity. And Cindric, uh, you know, I'm looking here on NASCAR.com. He's got 17 playoff points. Uh, and I look at like Allgaier and Briscoe are the next ones with 12 um, if he's able to go out there and and put together two stage victories in a win, he just further separating himself and giving him that extra cushion from for the round of eight when he when it comes down to you know a guy like Allgaier who's been there before and has been to the championship for. Um, and how think and on another note, how things could be different for Sieg, you know, if he had been able to finish in the top seven, you know, he had five more points he could have had, and he actually would have given him ninth place in the points. And being a point advantage over Brandon Jones, and we all know how these points are just so valuable. We're seeing it, we've seen it in the in the Cup Series, which we will get to. So uh, in, in the Roval, it's just uh, it, it's it's scary. I think these guys are going to be sweating bullets all week long, and they're going to be sweating bullets until the race is over and they get back to their shop. Sebastian, all right. So that was that. Uh, let's go ahead here real quick, though. And speaking of points, let's move on into uh, Formula One. And talk about a little bit about uh, uh, the Singapore Grand Prix from this uh, this weekend. Sebastian Vettel converted Ferrari's decision to pit him into the first pit him first into a victory on Sunday. Charles Leclerc led the first 19 laps of the Singapore Grand Prix before pitting, and Vettel was able to undercut his teammate. Lewis Hamilton led seven laps, and Antonio Giovinazzi led four laps in his Alfa Romeo, which was the first laps led by a driver and a team from outside Mercedes, Red Bull, or Ferrari since the British Grand Prix in 2015 when Williams led 20 laps that day. Uh, Leclerc was actually quite frustrated on the radio and visually disappointed at the end of the race that Vettel was allowed to undercut him after Leclerc won the pole position and followed team orders to slow his pace in the opening stage of the race. In those 19 laps, Leclerc led the uh, 15,000th lap for Ferrari in Formula 1, um, and then, so some of the more actiony parts of the event, uh, there was a clash between George Russell's Williams and Roman Grosjean's Haas that resulted in the first Williams retirement of 2019, which is surprising because, you know, Williams has been at the back of the grid and, you know, but they finished all the races. Uh, and this was the first retirement that they've had. Um, they were the final team to have finished with both cars in each Grand Prix through Monza. So a tough break there for Williams and, and George Russell didn't quite like you know what what had happened he blamed Grosjean for that meanwhile Grosjean said that you know there was nowhere for him to go you know in my opinion 
it looked like a racing deal, but uh, I also have to think that you know Roman Grosjean definitely has some kind of dirt on somebody at Haas because I I love the guy, believe me, but it, it is so surprising to see that he still actually has a ride. Um, uh, but it was a difficult day to pass overall. Christian Horner of Red Bull Racing said you needed about to be two seconds faster in order to pass someone. The other, only other way you could pass was to make an aggressive late-breaking move into slow corners, which worked for Daniel Ricciardo for a few attempts before it did not, and he got a puncture as a result of contact with Antonio Giovinazzi, which is not surprising. You know, Singapore Singapore has never really been, you know, uh, the easiest track to pass on. Um, it's never really been, you know, a track that's known for a, a whole ton of action. Yeah, there were three safety cars in the event, which was holy cow, but that, you know, just three safety cars doesn't necessarily make it for a good race. No, um, it does not. No. You know, it, I, I it, it just, it, 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 I hated that we were even, the race might be cut short too, because and I, I was hoping to get the full race in when we did. So. Yeah, especially that's the other thing about Singapore is the race always goes long and for, and, and Formula One has that two hour time limit no matter what on, on Grand Prix because which, you know, to be honest with you, I think is, is great because, you know, I look at some NASCAR events that just take forever to finish and it's like watching, you know, do you, do you remember like in basketball, you know, when, when, when people would take like every team would take like four or five timeouts within the last like minute of the game. Yeah, it's terrible. And that's that's what it feels like, you know, when NASCAR has to go to like multiple overtimes. I'm just like, come on. Why why are we doing this? Why this is this is and too long. We're going too long. So, I like it, but I also hated to see the potential for, you know, for for some of the race to get get cut off and get lost even though it was a well-known fact that Vettel was going to win the race no matter what. You know, you don't want to see a race end earlier than it's than it's supposed than it than it's scheduled distance yeah and i think it sounded like uh this is the first singapore grand prix i think i've ever watched live and i was really paying attention to what the you know the the commentary was saying and and they were saying that you know the like safety vehicle entrances and and exits to get to locations on the track were pretty far apart and that's what was taking so long particularly I believe it was during the first safety car was that, you know, it took them a while to get there and then they had to, to take them, it took them a while to get the car removed off the track. Um, I wonder if that's a thing that yeah, I feel like could be addressed. Um, it may have already should have been addressed or maybe they think they have addressed it um, to help, you know, speed up safety cars. That's the one thing about formula one, their safety cars usually do not take very long at all. Unless it's, there's a, a major cleanup or accident that they have to to clean up, but usually when it's just a stalled car on the track, it's it's quick and easy done over with. Yeah, that's that's something that I I I, I heard that as well, and I was really like kind of disappointed. It, it was kind of like so. I, I mean, don't get don't get me wrong. Like I probably understand logistically why it's so hard to place you know certain rescue vehicles around you know certain areas, but you know I I just feel like. You know, if they're going to design a, a track like that, then you need to have more safety vehicle openings at at all different types parts of the track. But it is such a long track too. You yes. know, Singapore is Singapore is this. It, it, it looks beautiful, but the track is so technical. It's unbelievably technical. Um, and and as a result, it's just like 
you know, we talked about how difficult it was to pass. You know, there are so few passing zones, really, on, on this racetrack. It is yeah, surprising and it, how and few passing zones there are. Yeah, it's 3.1 miles long, and you think there would be a couple more on there. It, it, it is. It just, I think you, I think you saw what uh, Ricardo was trying to do, you know, make a passing zone. Because some of those some of those moves he was making were pretty tight, and I'm pretty sure if he had made contact with a couple different people, he would have been handed a couple different time penalties. Um, and and if you, unless you have outright speed, it's a long day for you because it's just going to be follow the leader and maybe hope you can undercut someone on a pit stop. Oh yeah, but I thought that even then, like strategy wise. Strategy-wise, the race was interesting. Like I enjoyed watching it from a strategy standpoint to see what Ferrari was able to do, and see just how you know Merce- how wrong Mercedes got it. Like they thought oh, yeah. the whole time, "Oh, we're going to be able to undercut Vettel. We're going to be able to undercut Vettel." And then all of a sudden, it's like, "Oh no, we we didn't. We're actually behind. We Lewis is now behind Valtteri, and um, you know that was it, 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 that's a situation of just what do you do? You know, you screwed up." Uh, and, and Lewis was just not able to, to recover. I mean, he just flat was not able to recover after that because of how difficult it was to pass. Even if Lewis was probably way faster than Verstappen, you know, there was just no way he was going to be able to pass him at all anyway. Like, it looked like the thing that was interesting the most, at least for me, was just how close, you know, the front four or five cars were to each other, but they were only separated by about maybe a second, second and a half. And even then, it looked like DRS was completely useless uh, most of the time. Like Hamilton would get in DRS mode, DRS zone of like of 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 Vettel or Leclerc, like early early on in the race, and it just looked like he could do nothing with oh, that yeah. with that extra uh, advantage. And you know, it, it 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 you know we could sit here and talk about Singapore all we want, but you know we're going to Russia next week, which you know I think should be. More or less a better race, uh, but but we'll just have to see. I don't understand why Ferrari was so upset because I think, you know, I understand them wanting Leclerc. You know, Leclerc's like their bread and butter now, I guess, but Vettel is still like, he's still the fourth, five-time champion, you know? Yeah. Like, he's he's not, what is he, chopped liver? Like, no, he's not chopped liver. He's still Sebastian freaking Vettel. If he wins a race and you finish second, and Leclerc finished second. That's that's a good points day. Like, who should be disappointed in that? I, Ferrari shouldn't be disappointed in that. Leclerc shouldn't be disappointed in that. I know Leclerc wanted to win after the poll, but come on, it was a good points day for the constructors' title. Yeah, exactly. It was a good day. It was points. It was a good day. It's been a good three week, four week stretch for for Ferrari, and I think that where you saw that little maturity, maybe wise above his years there for Leclerc when he was just kept the answers pretty pretty tame when he was asked questions and he and he kind of he wasn't didn't look happy on the podium but he knew this was the best thing for the team we'll talk behind it closed doors where the press can't pick up and 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 see my displeasure with you know I think he was more upset that he he did what he was told and he wasn't rewarded for it I think that was maybe the the basis of it he had the best car in qualifying uh, and the best car in practice and slow down the field, slow down the pace. And then I'm like, hold on, I don't get the win. I think that's where his frustration was. Um, he was happy to have a good day for the team, but he was upset with his outcome for the race. 
And that makes sense. I totally understand where he's coming from on that point of view, but still, you know, Vettel winning is not a bad thing. I think Vettel, for the sake of Formula One, Vettel needs more wins. You know, he needs to be able to be challenging Lewis Hamilton. And right now, this so far this season, it's just been an easy cakewalk for Hamilton. You know, not to say that, you know, he, he's not one of the better drivers in Formula One and probably even in the world right now because he, he clearly is. But, you yeah. know, at the same time, I feel very strongly that, you know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with Vettel winning. You know, it's, yeah. it's a good thing for Formula One to have Sebastian Vettel winning because, you know, the points, the, the championship is, is like, you just give it to Hamilton. I know there's still plenty of races left. You know, we still have until like, what, the end of November to declare December. a champion. Yeah, the oh, last December, is in December. Now. Yeah, Abu Dhabi's in December this year. Even better, gosh, I love how long the Formula One schedule is. And, and, and I think he, one thing that Leclerc might have been looking at is like, hey, I could have had a chance to go to third in points too. Because looking at the points, he's tied with Verstappen now, um, and I, and he was looking at maybe a max point stay for him. I, I don't know, but I know he's just young, and maybe that's part. Of, maybe this is a maturity race for him. He showed his maturity for you know keeping a tame tongue. But maybe he. This is going to be even a bigger uh, growth moment. Where all right, the 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 team might have come first. Has to come first sometimes instead of me. Um, I don't know. Uh, it just. I was kind of frustrated myself too because just watching. I'm like, why wouldn't you reward Leclerc? But I I don't know. I guess I'm not the one calling the shots for Ferrari. No, I you know I I'm not either. Um... You know, at the end of the day, what more can you do? I mean, that's that's the that's the championship. I mean, it's it'll. There's really not much of a championship battle to discuss. Um, you know, there's not really a uh, 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 much of. Uh, there's really not much of a battle that we can really talk about other than what's going on on track. So yeah, and, and 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 these some of these tracks coming up are some of Hamilton's better tracks in the last few years in these championship runs too. So it's either this is he's either going to stretch it out and he's going to clinch it with a couple races left, or he's going to have some failures and that's going to allow people to come forward and uh, challenge him for this championship. Uh, because I mean, particularly when I look at Verstappen and and Leclerc, and if Ferrari both can keep this up, uh, finish well, max out points for Hamilton, Hamilton not get any points, things could be shaken up pretty quick. But I don't see that happening. I, I, I kind of in agreement with you. I think this championship might be over in the next race or two yeah so anyway with speaking of championships let's go ahead here real quick and uh talk about something that just had its championship race but not just yet uh we're actually going to go into our featured paint scheme of the week which is going to actually be the top three indie indycar paint schemes of 2019 uh and and uh josh we i mean the indycar season wrapped up this past weekend uh um, but we saw a lot of really, really good paint schemes this this uh, year. Yes, we did. Car. Yes, uh, we did. Josh, why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, the three that you picked out? Yeah. So, uh, IndyCar. It's not like for the NASCAR fans out there. It's not like NASCAR. You don't have a bunch of special paint schemes throughout the year. But there were a couple, and I tried to pick the special paint schemes, if you will. Uh, so my third, number three on my list is Will Powers Verizon 5G Ultra Wideband scheme. He drove for both the Indianapolis. GP and the Indianapolis 500. Uh, he finished fifth in or seventh in the GP, fifth in the 500, 
uh, it's just a different look. It's a nice to see, uh, you know, the Verizon, you know, with this, obviously this new program that they have getting the 5g out there. Um, nice to see them use Indianapolis as a platform to kind of display that. Uh, my number two, Felix Rosenquist, PNC bank scheme. He ran at Iowa. Uh, it was in the inverse of Scott Dixon's paint scheme. So it was cool, cool to see uh, both the Ganassi cars running the same sponsor and base paint scheme. But I liked his actually a little bit better than I do Scott Dixon's. Sorry, Scott. He finished 14th in that race. And then my number one is another Felix Rosenquist paint scheme. It's a Monster Energy paint scheme he drove at Gateway. I don't know why. I just could not leave this one off my list. And at the end of the day, I liked it the best. Uh, just a fresh look. I know it wasn't really stylish and really uh, poppy uh, to the eye, but it was a fresh look, in my opinion, to IndyCar, uh, to an IndyCar uh, paint scheme. So, and he finished 11th in that race. Unfortunately for him, they, he didn't perform all that well in those two paint schemes. But uh, Rob, what were your three? Yeah, I actually, I liked that one a lot. I, I wanted to pick that one, but I was glad that you had that one. The other one, though, I would say it was his Clover paint scheme from that Middle Ohio that he almost won in. That was a good one. That was a good one, too. Yeah, that one was, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that one was one of the one. But I picked, uh, I picked three that, I, I, I guess, that were just personal to me, I guess. Not really personal, but, you know, I, I just preferred them. I really liked them. Um, and, and, and these were like more or less, there's only one real special paint scheme in here that I picked. So my third one is going to go to Max Chilton's Gallagher insurance scheme. And I gave that, I think I gave that to, uh, my featured paint scheme, like back when we first started this. Uh, but I, that I'm sorry, but the light blue and the dark blue and the gray or silver, it's just so good. I, I really think that the Chilton's Gallagher schemes have been some of the best looking ones, you know best looking schemes in IndyCar for the past couple of years. I believe but, so too. Yeah. Very good looking. Yeah. I mean this one, but this one, they really stepped it up this year and made it look even better. Very catching to the eye, very pleasing aesthetically. Uh, it was really good to see Connor Daly give that, that rock, that car some really good runs uh, on the ovals. Um, you know, I, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, it's a great scheme. And uh, I, I wonder if they could make it look even better. You know, I wonder if they're going to try and make it look even even better next season because uh, I think that they have a legitimate chance at doing that. Uh, and but speaking of Connor Daly, I I this my second pick is actually Connor Daly's U.S. Air Force scheme that he drove at the Indianapolis 500 and this past weekend at uh, Laguna Seca, and I am so glad that it made a return at Laguna Seca. I know Daly didn't have nearly the kind of run that he probably wanted to, but. Gosh, this scheme is so cool. It is, I mean, that's the one I chose for the Indianapolis 500 feature paint scheme back in May. Yeah, it's, I like this. Yeah, and it's hard not to like it, honestly. Um, I've always, always liked – I've liked it since basically it, it came out. And uh, when you picked it, I was like, oh, wow, man, I don't blame him for picking that. But now for me, I'm just like, I, I got to pick this one. This is It's my pick. <laughs> uh, and number one actually is – it's going to be a little bit strange because I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, why is this number one? Well, Marcus Erickson's arrow scheme, I like it. I know that it's very similar to, to the one that James Hinchcliffe drove. But that gold nose, the extra gold on the car is just so much better. I mean, the gold, extra gold on the front nose of the car and on the rear wing uh, and, and a few other places like accent, gold accents. That is just, to me it's stellar it's supreme it's everything that you know i could want 
um, gold and black and silk gold, black and gold, uh, very very Purdue esque, I guess. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, I I find it very very appealing. So all right, so I was a little shocked to have see you have that one on here. I won't lie, but I see why you like it. I see why you see, like it. Okay, I'm glad you could see why I like it because yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought it was a very, very beautiful scheme. I liked it from the moment that I saw it, um, and I hope that it. I know it's probably not going to make a return next season, but you know, if anything, it should be remembered for just how good it is. Um, so let's go ahead here, real quick. And now that we've hit the halfway part, but almost not really the halfway part, but the thirty-minute part portion of this show, uh, let's talk about the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series. Federated Auto Parts 400 at Richmond. So I watched this race, you know, more or less from start to finish. You know, I, I tuned in and out here and there just because I was at work at the same time. But he performed the, quote, spin and win and survived an attempted bump and run by his teammate. Martin Truex Jr. wins the Federated Auto Parts 400 on Saturday night. It was his 25th career win and the first time he had earned back-to-back victories. Which shocked me. Which yeah, no, I didn't expect that either. Is this true? It's just like really, I had to go back and check. Not that I didn't believe what they were saying on TV. What? So yeah, that was nuts. Yeah, it's it's an incredible uh, feat for Truex there. But he led what was an originally a Joe Gibbs Racing one two three four, but now it's just a JGR one two three, which you know is not not bad in itself. But you know, you you probably would have liked something different to have happened. Uh, but anyway, so, um, yeah, because Eric Jones, was who finished fourth, was disqualified uh, later in the race for having um, rear, to- uh, rear toe issues in post-race inspection. I had absolutely no idea what that meant by that. It sounded like it was so minor and so minuscule that it barely even mattered. But apparently it mattered enough to disqualify Jones for the race, which basically means that he is completely up a creek without a paddle. Uh, it's important to note that this is the first disqualification in the Cup Series this year. Okay, we got our first disqualification back in June, and we talked about that with Ross Chastain. Uh, and we've talked about all the disqualifications, I believe, since. Um, at least the big ones that have mattered. I, I know that for sure. But this is the first time that it's happened in the Cup Series. And darn it, it happened to a playoff driver in the playoffs. And I think that is the craziest thing uh, to happen uh, to in this playoffs because he was only going to be about three points out. Now he's forty five back. He's in a must yeah. win. Yeah, what is, is it, he? Yeah, he has. He he is currently as of right now. He is almost thirty points behind Kurt Busch in fifteenth spot, which basically means that if he doesn't if he doesn't win the Roval, he's he's done. He's pretty much done. Uh, which is really a, a shame because if you think, I mean, uh, how about Eric Jones? Like, from the highest of the highs, he wins at Darlington to the absolute lowest of the lows one week, like a few weeks later. Like, yeah. how does that, I mean, that's, that's how racing. does that even happen? That's, that's racing. crazy. Especially, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's this new NASCAR playoff format. And, you know, we talk about it, and we could beat the dead horse all over and over again. But at the end of the day, you can't have mistakes like this. A crew can't go out and do this. You know, the fact of the matter is, dude, if you're if your car is not gonna be legal when it it's post race inspection, then it's it's not gonna get it's gonna get quick disqualified. And the worst thing that could have happened there was, you know, you could have had, you know, 
something taken away from you more than just points. So he only got one point for uh for that for Richmond despite finishing fourth and having what I thought was an actually a very very good run for Eric Jones. It's very good run because he was twenty seven points out after his issues with his gearbox or his uh, transmission at Las Vegas, and he said we're gonna we can point our way in, and I and I don't think too many people believed him. But to walk out, like I said, he was only three points out of 12th place after the race with the, with the playoff points, or excuse me, the uh, uh, stage points he gathered, and then his finishing position uh, to to lose all that. And, and again, it was outside the box. And and I, I saw where people were like, well, that doesn't really matter, but it's outside the box. You know, we, if we keep moving the box out and out and out, we're just going to have no rules. Um, so, and, and like you mentioned, high highs to low lows. Um, it's nothing like I. Uh, we talked about the roll for the Xfinity. This is a cutoff race for the Cup Series. I mean, if you are not in the top twelve or win a race at the end of this, uh, at the end of Sunday, you're done. Your 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 championship hopes are are over. Yeah, no, for for real, and and that's that's one of the biggest biggest issues that Eric Jones is going to have. You know, he probably, like you said, he would have been able to point his way in. You know, had this had that fourth place finish stood, but you know, now that the fourth place finish has been taken away from him, there's no way he is going to be able to point his way in. I mean, it's just impossible. He has to win the Roval. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has to win the Roval. That's the only way it's going to happen. Uh, a, a, but he wasn't the only playoff driver who had a, a mixed bag of results. He wasn't the only playoff driver that had issues. A lot of them had, you know, mixed bag results, issues here non-issues there martin Truex jr didn't have any issues because he obviously won the race and he gained an additional six playoff points for the round of 12 uh kevin harvick and kyle bush both locked themselves into the round of 12 brad keselowski and denny hamlin are 55 and 54 per point respectively are sure lock-ins as well as joey logano who is plus 50 to the good after an 11th place finish chase elliott is plus 37 and kyle larson is plus 25 with decent to good runs at the charlotte roval they will be Likely moving on. However, from ninth place, Ryan Newman to 14th place, Clint Boyer, only 18 points separate them. Ryan Newman is 14 points to the good. Blaney is eight points to the good. Almirola is three. Byron is two. Alex Bowman is negative two below the cut line. Clint Boyer is negative four. Kurt Busch is negative four out of the round of 12. And uh, yeah, Eric Jones is is 45 behind below the cut line. Uh, he, so these those guys must win. You know, Kurt Busch has to win. Uh, Eric Jones has to win. Clint Boyer pro- might have to win too. And Alex Bowman might be able to capitalize if someone in front of him has a bad finish. Well, Clint Boyer could capitalize too, but he'd have to rely on someone in front of him also having a bad finish. Uh, and I I don't know. Ryan Blaney won this race last year season. He was, was, he was running third. He was running third, and he might have right. Might have inherited the win, if you want to put it that way. But he's still running third, and uh, but I, I just don't know. I don't know if you can solely rely on what you did last year to do well this year. I, I, I mean, it's you only had one race. It's a different package. Uh, that 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 lovely P word that everyone likes to talk about. But oh, can uh, we talk I, about I, the package a little bit? Go ahead. Yeah, let's talk about a little bit of the package because you you have it mentioned down here. You didn't see any rubber being laid down even after 360 laps. That's a problem, too, in and of itself. But, again, not just rubber problems, but it just seemed like passing was impossible. Like Kyle Busch, Kyle Busch said last, last week, you know, when everybody gave him a whole, ton of, a whole ton of crap 
about how he handled himself post race, right? After after uh, Las Vegas, and you know, it seemed to me that when someone asked him, you know, how do you feel about your chances at Richmond? He was like, he can't pass. And I'm like, he's right. He's right. You can't pass here anymore. You know, this is a place Kyle Busch used to dominate. This is a place where you used to be able to pass pretty easily. It was a two-groove short track, and it wasn't like a two-groove short track like Bristol. It was an actual two-groove short track where, you know, you could make decent moves on the inside or the outside so long as rubber was being laid down. But it just seemed like these guys were having such a hard time passing. I mean, it wasn't even funny after a while. I mean, I got bored. You know, I don't like to talk about boring NASCAR races because I feel like that's something that's just a silly thing that we don't need to be talking about because, you know, from a perspective standpoint, yeah, most races could be considered boring if you're watching for the wrong things. But this was legitimately boring. I mean, there was like little to no strategy being played. I mean, not until maybe about the very, very last couple of runs, uh, you know, there, at, at least in stage three. Uh, because leading up to that, there was almost no reason for anybody to have any kind of strategy because you could just wait till the stage breaks and or wait till the st- scheduled pit stops, stuff like that. Uh, but for the most part, it just seemed like it was so difficult for guys to make moves, make passes. I think the only person who had luck with that, though, was Stenhouse, that first uh, stage where he kind of split the, split the stage and then was able to make his way back up through the field. So you had to have fresh tires. That was the like, bottom line. Or you had – Mark Truex Jr. had a car that could turn and just stick on that yellow line all the way around the track. I mean, okay. So I'm looking – we have the, the racing reference pulled up, right? And according to this, it says there was 1,005 green flag passes in Saturday's race. And it, saying that there was an average of 2.7 per green flag lap. And I wouldn't – I would not – I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised about that. I, I don't know how many of those maybe are are lapping cars or you know cars swapping, uh, swapping the le- swapping positions for reasons reasons. Uh, but it just looked bad on TV. I don't know. I, I don't it know bad what on TV would be. I, I think definitely a part of it is tires. If you're not laying down rubber, you can't get that extra grip and move and move the groove up and widen the groove. Um, I don't know how much of the huge spoiler played a role in this, but I think you, you've mentioned it before on the show, and, and and we've discussed it. They need to go back to track-specific packages in this Gen 7 car because if it was – I'm sure it was a combination of both the package and the tire, um, but it just did not work out at Richmond yeah. this time I around. Was, I was thinking about that last night, like how – Badly, NASCAR needs to go back to track-specific packages because this race, you, you not, you know, no, you, you, NASCAR has prides itself on racing at so many different tracks, right? I mean, mm-hmm. granted, you know, we're not going to dirt, we're not going to like stuff street like that, courses. but street courses, but but we are going to mile and a half race tracks, short tracks, uh, mile race tracks, super speedways, stuff like that. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution that NASCAR wants. And yeah. I think they need to come to terms with that because, look, we've we've seen much better races on mile and a half tracks this season. So and this a lot of that is working be, well on this. Yeah, a lot of that could be contributed to you know certain track conditions or to the package itself. But the but the common denominator here is tracks that used to be fun and entertaining to watch are no longer fun and entertaining. Short tracks are no longer fun, and road courses are no longer fun. So when we look at, at 
ahead at the Roval, I think passing is going to be even harder there because we've seen passing be difficult at Sonoma and at Watkins Glen, whereas years past, it it was easy. It wasn't that difficult to pass. You know, road courses always created for an exciting race. I don't know. I mean, the Roval could be just as a, a crazy and exciting as it was last year. I'm not counting on that. I'm not counting on that. I'd like to see it, but I'm not counting on it. Um, just overall, I, you know, I, I don't know what NASCAR needs to do. They, I'm really worried. I'm really worried for the future. If they look at this and they said, oh yeah, this is fine. This is totally fine. Having, you know, that few amounts of passes be able to be made at Richmond. And I I mean, I just want to take a look back. I'm going to look at, uh, the previous race. So I want to see if they have that kind of, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So definitely. That is terrifying. That is sad. Okay, so according to racingreference.info, I'm looking at this right now. So I told, I mentioned already, it said that there were 1,005 on-track passes uh, at this past weekend. Uh, at, at Las Vegas, we saw 3,494, so almost 3,500 passes, uh, a, a total of uh, 14.3 per lap on average, uh, and 24 lead changes. I don't know what that tells you, but it tells me that there's something very, very wrong with uh, this this package here at this racetrack because well, it says there, there are only six lead changes as well, and that's I don't know what to do, man. That's that's pretty bad. I don't know what it says to... about um, at at Indianapolis. At Indianapolis, there were more passes than there were at at Richmond. There were one thousand five hundred and eleven passes at Indianapolis, so there were actually more passes at Richmond than there were at um there were more passes at Indianapolis than there were at Richmond is what I hey, get this get this right here going back uh the five, past five races at Richmond okay back in 2017 uh this race two years ago there was just under 2,000 green light green light passes okay um going to the spring of 18 there was 1,800 green flag passes. Uh, fall of last year, there were 1,600 passes. Uh, spring of this past year, there were 1,200 passes. And then now we have just over 1,000 green flag lap passes. Obviously turning in the wrong direction. And, you know, I don't mind the six lead changes because sometimes you're just going to have a car or two that are just, just that much better. But where that can be helped is, okay, What's the field from 15th to 20th doing? Are there good battles there? Uh, even all, even further back, you know, uh, 5th to fifth to 30th. You know, what's that, field, what's that part of the field doing as far as their passing and their racing going on? Because I know you want to have a, a good race up front, a good, good battle for the lead, as we've seen many times this year. Sometimes that's just not going to happen. And uh, going back to, a, like you said, a track-specific package, figuring out what works for Richmond because what works at Richmond is probably actually not going to work anywhere else except maybe if NASCAR, the couple series would go to Memphis. So it's probably not going to work anywhere, but those two tracks, what works at uh, Michigan is only going to work at Fontana uh, in California. So I, I, I think trying to do, do this whole year or, or moving forward, doing the whole year with just two packages is not going to be the solution Granted, the racing I think has been overall better this year. I think it can be still better than what we saw have seen 
through 28 races. I think the biggest the biggest telling is what worries me so much is when I hear people want um, it, people cars and drivers needing track position. When I hear the word track position on a short track, or not even just on a short track, but on a on a mile and a half sometimes too, that worries me. You know, short track needing track position on a short track. It depends on the short track. If it's a, a track where it's difficult to pass, like Martinsville or Bristol or something like that. Yeah, track position. Yeah, I'm going to be nervous about. I'm going to be nervous about hearing stuff like that. But when it's on a place like Richmond, where passing typically has not been a difficult thing to to accomplish, and guys are talking about track position being the be all end all, like literally, I don't think Martin Truex Jr. would have um, would have even hit this had you know he not had he not done had the track position. He wouldn't have won this race had he not had track position, and and that's to me just. Oh, it's and the JG car, but the JGR cars were all so much better this year, this weekend than I think everyone else. I think Brad might have had a car for the short run, but he didn't have a car that was going to go toe to toe for a hundred lap grade flag run at Richmond uh, either. I mean, it's just this was a Joe Gibbs Toyota painted weekend across the entirety of NASCAR at Richmond uh, Raceway this weekend. But what's uh, one thing before we do move on though? Let's let's talk about some of these guys who had some pretty good finishes. Okay. Okay. Ryan Newman. Okay. You know, the reason he got so many good points uh, is higher than the standing fifth out of the DQ from Eric Jones. Okay? How, how many people expected that to happen? I don't think I, any, I, I, I sent out a tweet on Saturday. I said, Ryan Newman's going to point his way into the final four yes. again, isn't he? I, 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 ho- I kind of hope he doesn't because I don't, I, I mean, I just, I don't know if he's a championship four team, but you know, if he does, that's great. He earned it. Yeah. I like chaos. Even the playoffs. The chaos is good. Chaos is good. Um, Boyer and Suarez, who both are driving for their jobs, you know, they finished eighth and ninth. Boyer eighth, Suarez ninth. A very quiet day for him, but a quiet day for Jimmy Johnson. He got tenth, and Bubba Wallace twelfth. I mean, that guy, that team has just has has been on a roll since the beginning of August, and uh, good to see them finally running. Or getting better as this year has progressed after an extremely slow start to 2019. And hey, yeah, you mentioned uh, Matty D, or you didn't mention it, but it's here in the notes. Matty D, dude, Matt Benedetto finished 14th. He was running up there in the top 10. He was for a he lot was. of that race too. I mean, he was having a pretty pretty darn good good run of it uh, in the, in this in the stages, just in the early stages, just wasn't able to capitalize at the very end, but you know, top 15 is not bad, especially for a guy like that. who's not really running for a championship. Who's just trying to get the best finishes that he can. You know, that's, that's, I mean, to me, I think that's a little bit, that's, that's impressive in it, in and of itself. Uh, especially considering the fact that, uh, he's, well, he started 12th, so he had a pretty good rate run, but fell back to 14th, but Hey, you know, that's, that's what you get. That's what's going to happen sometimes. Uh, so good run for Matt, Matt Benedetto. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think now would be a, a good time to to go ahead here and move on real quick to the NTT IndyCar Series uh, and the championship race, uh, the Firestone Grand Prix of Monterey. Uh, the so I guess I guess they're going to have to name a corner after his family as Colton Herta won the pole and claimed his second career victory in the Firestone Grand Prix of Monterey on Sunday, and Joseph Newgarden won his second NTT IndyCar Series championship making me look like a complete fool because I picked Rossi to win it. Um, I think I think someone on this podcast picked Joseph Newgarden. But I, he, uh, I, I, I tell you what, I was a little scared, though. I mean, not that I had anything on the line for it, but 
I felt I was kind of scared for Joseph because like he's not running high enough to win this thing if Simon Pagano gets the first. And yeah. uh, and and I, we'll talk about the emotions here in 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 a couple moments. But uh, good race, good race, good race for the uh, battle up front there at the end. Yeah, no, I mean Colton Herta, dude. Colton Herta looked scary good out there. I mean, he literally dominated. Like I I remember like Portland. We were watching Portland, and you could see how much Dixon was making him use up his tires yeah. uh, and, and how much he used up his tires. And, and after he lost the lead because he had to pit uh, so early, you know, he, he just was never able to recover. And I felt like this race, he learned from that and was like, all right, I don't care who's breathing down my neck. I'm just going to run my own race, keep, keep take care of my tires and, and go off and win this thing. And it, the dude literally impressed me more than I think any young rookie has impressed me this year. I know Felix Rosenquist was rookie of the year. And I'm I'm real proud of him. He had a great run. He deserved it. But dude, if Colton Herta had had a couple of races there where he didn't have some bad luck or some crashes, I think Colton Herta would have easily been Rookie of the Year. Oh, I think Colton Herta is surprised. I, I think that's the surprising thing, right? When you mm-hmm. look at it, he only missed the the Rookie of the Year honors by five points, and that's yeah. a position or two for Rosenquist on the track on on Sunday. That's a fifth place finish to seventh, right? Um, and, and, and for some of these things, it, it, it stinks that Herta had those mechanical issues in the spring. Like after he won Coda, the guy had no luck until right. he got to June zero. And I don't think he finished the race until Detroit a- after, after his Coda win. So when you look at that, okay, what if he's able to finish a couple of those races? He's rookie of the year, mm-hmm. plain and simple. There's no, there's no question in my mind. Um, and the thing that I was watching when I was watching that race I'm thinking to myself, he used the lessons all those first 16 races that he had learned and, and, and learned hard, sometimes a hard way. And I think Portland was one of those races. And he kept a total of six championships behind him in Scott Dixon's five and Will Powers one. So yeah. good for him. And plus, he also, rookie-wise, pushed a pass, managed that extremely well. Yeah, no, I, you mentioned here in the notes – how much push to pass usage was very, very high in the early stages. And, and I saw Colton Herta, you know, he didn't, he was not pushing it like at all. He was, no, he didn't use it till like the last 10 or 12 laps. And he just breathed like two, two seconds of it off of the, off of the final corner down the front stretch to get away from whoever was in second place, which was the most time there in the later uh, laps was willpower. Yeah. And, and, you know, but Hey, uh, Joseph Newgarden, man, I mean, he knew how to manage that race. I mean, he didn't need to, to set any, anybody, any, you know, light any fires. He didn't need to go out and, uh, put on the best show in the world. You know, all he had to do was just kind of chill around there and run his own race. And that's what he did. And he ended up winning team Penske's 16th championship and fourth in the past six years. And I think the only guy who uh doesn't who who was not from team penske who's won those other championships has been scott dixon so yeah, scott dixon won in 15 and then last year holy holy moly i mean it's that's crazy um and then and you notice here like uh pit exit battles we saw a lot of those throughout the the race it was interesting because you know you woke up in the morning and you started watching the, the formula one race and they were talking all about the undercut and you saw how well the undercut went with uh sebastian vettel but a lot of guys looked like they were taking, uh, they're trying to do the same thing at uh, Laguna Seca. 
Uh, because, well, you know, I said this a long time ago, and I said this in earlier podcasts, and I said this on Twitter, and I, I've made this very, very, very well known. The Laguna Seca is not an easy track to pass. So we've already talked about, like, you know, um, we've talked about Richmond at NASCAR, how hard it is to pass, and then we go to Laguna Seca, and Laguna Seca is, is, has been traditionally difficult to pass. Like, no matter what, there are just not very many passing zones outside of maybe the Andretti hairpin. And if you want, you know, to make an illegal move, you, you commit the move in the, in the corkscrew. But, um, you know, it, it, there were a lot of interesting pit strategies, a lot of strong driving, and the pit exit battles, like, were here were just wild. Like, guys coming out of, right in front of other guys on hot tires, guys in cold tires coming right out in front of guys in, in hot tires and just blocking them blocking the crap out of it i think i was waiting for a wreck i said someone is going to wreck going down uh into turn three or someone's going to throw a block late in turn four something is going to happen and the only things we saw were a couple guys dipping their left side tires off in the uh the dirt between turns three and four so that's the thing that shocked me that there weren't any yellows for accidents from guys coming out on pit road off of pit road well yeah i mean when when rossi and simon pagino we're battling there. I was. I, I looked at myself and I was like, "Oh man, don't do this." This oh, is. Oh, those this are two champs, you guys. Might be the championship right here. Yeah. And and I, and I was just and and I knew when when Rossi went off, I was like, "Oh no, that's that's killing his tires. That just destroyed his tires." You know, and and I think it did. It did. Uh, Rossi was not met watching after his tires as well as maybe some of the other guys were, and I think that really was one of the big pieces to why he didn't win the championship because I think he was just going so much harder than everybody else was. And, you know, at the end of the day, he just wasn't able to get it done because I think he just pushed his car too hard. I think he was overly confident. You said it right there. I think it was overly confident. Day, not to say that Andretti couldn't have won the championship, but the car set up that day and everyone, the way everyone else's car was set up and how good they were. Yeah. It's not going to be his day to win the championship. And I think he tried to overcompensate that with tires and, he made it clear multiple times during that broadcast, tire degradation was going to be high, and it was. And, he, and you could tell the guys who fell back quickly when their tires were go- were gone. Cause I don't know how Scott Dixon held on to to third place uh, there at the end of the race with Simon Pagano. His, his tires were gone, and Simon Pagano's was was, st- were, was still better than his. So I don't know idea how that happened. But that's just Scott Dixon's why he got five championships. Yeah, and, 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 you know, tire deg being so big, you know, you saw a lot of green flag pit stops, a lot of guys trying to do the undercut, but there was actually a caution. <laughs> Only one caution was for uh, a stuck uh, Connor Daly in turn two, which was upsetting, but he was racing with Marco Andretti and just, just spun. Uh, and on the resulting restart, Santino Ferrucci finally committed a mistake uh, and had his lo- lo- brakes lock up and just slammed into Takuma Sato. Uh, Ed Frucci would pull off and then be given an avoidable contact penalty. So, and for once, the NBC commentators actually acknowledged that he was in the wrong, which blew my mind because I didn't think that that was possible. <laughs> After all, I, mean, I was like, good Lord, are we just, I, I, I just felt like, oh, how are they going to make this into Sato's fault, right? <laughs> like somehow they're going to be like, this is Sato's fault so that Ferrucci looks perfect. Yeah, right? yeah. And, I, I, I know, I know. I, I said my piece on Ferrucci, and I'm trying not to just beat him up too hard because, you know, it, it's, it's easy for me to to say a lot of things that, you know, me being here, this Monday morning quarterback guy, uh, but he's the only other guy there. But still, I, I'm still like, dude, dude, 
really, you're, if you're gonna, if you want people to like you over here, you're gonna have to take some responsibility one way, one day or another. So, what did you I think about the uh, incident in the corkscrew when Takuma Sato took Mateus Leist and Zach Veach three wide? What What did you think about that? I thought it was. I thought it was wild. Um, I thought it was. I mean, it, it's classic Sato. It's it's first and foremost classic Sato. Um, but you know. I, it's 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 just more proof that Laguna Seca is tough to pass, and you pretty much have no other option than to make a crazy move like that, and you know in in in, in the corkscrew where people are probably least expecting it. That's the only that's the best place you have to attack, and I I don't know I just felt that I thought it was an interesting and gutsy move. It was very Sato esque. I think but, he got lucky. I think he. I think he got lucky because if he would have had, there would have been more contact there, and maybe Veach doesn't evo- uh, e- evade like he did. Uh, I think he would have been handed in uh, um, uh, a penalty for avoidable contact. Or, uh, because I, I, I was actually kind of surprised because like they made, or at least NBC made no acknowledgement that IndyCar was not investigating that because Veach got screwed on that uh, on, on that exchange because he lost both those positions. Um, and went off track. So I was a yeah. little surprised that they didn't at least say, hey, we're investigating it, and then later come back and say, you know, no action necessary, no action taken kind of deal. I was yeah. a little surprised at that. I wish that they had done that. You know, I really I really would have preferred that them, them had, had, had done something like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, let's, let's, let's also Yeah, let's go ahead that, here and move on real quick. Well, hold on. Let's acknowledge one thing. Oh, nine percent. Acknowledging nine percent up in viewership IndyCar this year, excluding oh, yes. the rain, the rain infected races at Barber and Iowa, as they always do when they talk about this. Uh, any weather affected races, but nine percent up in viewership with NBC across the entire year for IndyCar. I think it's good for that NBC. Uh, I think it's good for IndyCar that NBC has it all. That I think they promote it better than ABC and ESPN did. Sorry, but that's how I feel. Um, and I think people acknowledge that NBC is maybe the better sports channel for motorsports at this point in time. Uh, and, and so, uh, and, and it shows that IndyCar is on the up and up too. And the racing's getting better. It's extremely competitive. And as we've seen a few times this year, anybody can win. Yeah. You talked about promotion there. I think, you know, I've never saw a promotion for IndyCar racing on ABC ever. Well, yeah. of course it didn't happen, but. You know, even even back in the day when it when it did happen, you never saw something like that on Sunday Night Football. Yeah, like you exactly. Would never hear them talk about it on Sunday Night Football, uh, on Monday Night Football, and uh, Monday Night Football, I should say, back then. But when ESPN had Sunday Night Football too, it was. Just, I mean, they would never talk about it anyway. But um, you know, NBC, NBC Sunday Night Football is. I mean, they're they knocked it out of the park. They're talking about NASCAR. They're talking about IndyCar. I mean, they promote literally everything, every type of property they cross promote and i think yes. that's that's something that really helps nbc because i think they have to do that nbc in order to get to to receive returns on investment for some of these sports properties that they're going out and getting they need to create more fans of them and i think that's what they've done pretty successfully i think they've done a lot of that with with, with soccer especially with having uh the premier league on there that's become very popular that's gotten nbc ascent very popular to have in households um things like that you know, grabbing hockey, having NHL games, primetime NHL games being broadcast, not just on NBC, but then also on NBCSN. And then having all this all this motorsports programming that they could throw in there as well. I think that just helps out 
even more. So I think more people were definitely aware that, hey, IndyCar, the IndyCar season is happening, and it's a lot more than just the Indy 500. And I do um, believe that this, like, this, a couple of these IndyCar start times were actually pretty good starts, too. And I like that the, uh, the race, the coverage started at 2.30, right? Mm-hmm. And the race didn't get going until about 3.15. Um, and I kind of, I, for, I, for, I mixed up motorsports sanctionings for a second, because if you look on like when, when NASCAR says race starts at, at two, it's actually going to start like a 2.15-ish, 2.20-ish. Um, and, and IndyCar, I forgot, like they, they usually show when coverage begins. But I thought the start time was really good because a couple of times past few years, like Sonoma would begin really late in the day and it would almost go into Sunday night football. And I felt yeah. this one, it really benefited. You could, you could watch the race and it was on NBC that benefited big too. So having the championship race on, uh, you know, the broadcast network is, is, is a must And IndyCar. I really felt like it was a good, it may not have the most passes in the world, uh, but it was a good, I thought that was a fair race, pretty good race um, to end the IndyCar season. You had a young guy win it, win the championship and you had a guy who was, who finished, Eighth, right? Yeah, Joseph Newcarn finished eighth and was kind of all you know hinging on. Is Simon Pagano going to get by Scott Dixon and Will Power and then Colton Herta? So I, I was, it was a good non battle, <laughs> a good battle for position that just that they never really uh matured and, and, and came to fruition. No, I agree with that. I thought that uh, you know, it, it was overall, it was very, very good, uh, very, very good coverage, very, very good. I mean, my my issues with the coverage or just how much praise Santino Ferrucci gets for no reason at all. Um, that's really my only issue issues. And that's the only issue I've, I've had the entire time with the, with the coverage. Uh, so overall, you know, I can't, I can't really complain, but let's move on real quick because uh, I, I think we should just kind of breeze, breeze through here. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about the outstanding performance uh, of the week, mine mine is definitely going to Sebastian Vettel. I don't care what anybody says. Sebastian Vettel uh, is is gets my outstanding performance. I didn't think he had the pace or the focus really, because Vettel hasn't really had the focus the past couple of years uh, since he's been with the Ferrari. And a lot of people were had even been talking about someone to replace Vettel. Um, and so I'm glad that Vettel basically came out and said, "No, guys, I can still win a race. I can still win a race." He worked the undercut to perfection. He held off. His teammate when he needed to. I don't understand why um, Ferrari would be so upset with having Vettel on the top step. Or so I've heard. I've heard that Ferrari wasn't happy about that. But I think that Vettel Vettel had the drive of the day. He had the most impressive drive uh, out of anybody. And uh, you know, I, I mean, if you hadn't have picked your guy, I probably wouldn't have picked Vettel. But Vettel definitely, in my opinion, deserves uh, deserves a, a little trophy uh, for that. So how about you, Josh? Who's your outstanding performance? Yeah, and by the way, we could pick the same guy. We've done it before. I know we can. Digging. I know yeah. we can. It's nice to share I, the I love, though. To talk about him because <laughs> I think that you know you you have more insight probably on him, and I had more that maybe on Vettel. So anyway, yeah. oh, who's yeah. your okay. performance? Okay, yeah. Well, Colton Herta. I mean, I already praised him a little bit talking about the race, and 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 you praised him too. But I think he put together the most complete race of the year. I don't think he was going to win Coda back in March. Um, I think I was probably going to go to Will Power. I think Will had the better car that day. Um, but he, like I mentioned, I think he used the lessons learned in the first 16 races of the year, particularly from the, uh, the one, uh, the lessons learned a couple weeks ago in Portland and put together a race win and really capped off what a year that has 
might be viewed by probably some at Harding Steinbrenner as a disappointment, but they had two wins, two poles, and he held off Scott Dixon. If Scott Dixon gets by, we might have been talking about a different winner here. So I think that's good for him, good for the young guy. Uh, it's good to see youth youth uh, succeeding. And we had a couple, you know, Santino Ferrucci had a had some good runs this year. Rosenquist has some good runs. Erickson even showed some some flashes of, of, of greatness. But Herta uh, is one of those guys in, who's going to be a staple in this series for years to come. Um, so that's why I'm giving it to, giving it to him. Uh, just I was just surprised by that. I didn't expect him to win that race, to be honest. Uh, and I was glad I was proven wrong on, on that one. Yeah, so uh, let's go ahead here then. And after our outstanding performance, Let's go ahead and, and jump right into our upshift and downshift. Uh, one of our favorite uh, segments on the show, uh, to give you a quick little rundown if you're new to the show, uh, it, upshift means we agree, downshift means we disagree, and uh, what we upshift and downshift to are we're presented with a series of hypothetical questions or uh, statements, and we just simply give our opinions on them. Uh, and remember, you can play along at home, you can answer these a- uh, upshift downshift questions anytime you want by simply tweeting the show at Robin Roller using the hashtag AskRobinRoller. So let's go ahead and get started on the upshift and downshift segment for today's show. With four starts in the NASCAR Xfinity Series, Harrison Burton has run quite well in, in each of these races. Uh, for a driver who has run a very limited schedule, especially considering the fact that his truck series results are not nearly what we expect. Uh, so are we going to see more of Harrison Burton in a Joe Gibbs Racing Supra in the Xfinity Series in 2020? Do you think so, Josh? Yeah, I'm going to upshift. I think he's going to be in, in the 20 car this year. Um, or at least I would be shocked, and I wouldn't understand why he wouldn't be. Um, I think he's proven um, he's matured a lot. Like the first half of the, the truck season was a bit of a struggle, I think, for him and both Todd Gill and both. Uh, but, you know, Burton was a true rookie. And he showed he's able to overcome some obstacles and some criticism from his from his boss into almost in a couple times get into the, the truck series playoffs. But his performances in the Xfinity series, I think, have been even more impressive. And he's been able to run in the top five many times and for many of the laps that he's run. Um, I think he's proving that, hey, I'm I'm mastering this car quicker than I am the truck. And this tr- this car suits my driving style a little bit more. And I'm ready for the next step. So, yeah, I'm going to say upshift. We're going to see him in the full-time uh, Joe Gibbs car next year. You know, I, I I believe you 100%, but actually I'm I'm going to have to unfortunately downshift. And the reason why I'm downshifting is because I really feel like, you know, despite how good his Xfinity starts are, I really feel like he's going to need another season in trucks. He's going to need to make the playoffs in trucks in order to prove to people, sponsors, to – you know, high ups that, you know, he belongs in the Xfinity series. Now, I don't know what, you know, Joe Gibbs has planned. Obviously, I think we talked about it before the show that you think that Brandon Jones is going to be, is you not think, but you heard that Brandon Jones is indeed going to be back in the 19 for 2020. So, you know, with Christopher Bell now, you know, they announced today that he's going cup racing next year. You know, maybe he'll be moved up, but I, I'm, I'm just... I'm not so sure yet. I'm not so sure yet that they're gonna they're gonna be doing that. But uh, so for the next question uh, is one that actually is interesting. I actually want to talk about this myself. The Singapore Grand Prix location on the F1 calendar gives it a 
gives it a risk for what is known as, quote, the haze. The fog is caused by forest fires in nearby Indonesia and Malaysia, which peak between July and October. This turns the picturesque Singapore skyline into a gray dystopia. The air quality is affected and masks are even available for purchase by the spectators. Good Lord. Is it time for the Singapore GP promoters and Formula One to reconsider Singapore's calendar position? Josh. Yeah, well, for that reason, definitely, yeah. You got to upshift. Um, and the temperatures support a race, even in November and December, even. I don't know if you'd want to end the race, uh, the season at Singapore, but a November date would be, I pr- think, pretty uh, pretty reasonable. Um, because it, you can't have, I don't, it sounds like the past few years have been too bad. I think it was back in 2013, you had some pretty poor air quality. Um, it, it, that I forget how they measure now, how they what they use to measure the the quality of oxygen and in, in, in the air. But this year was pretty high. Um, and when you're talking about that, it's obviously something that that is concerning to someone. And um, yeah. when you think about the fans and then just overall the the, the sport, and if, if if everyone can say, "Hey, this isn't something you can really." This isn't caused by industry. This isn't. This is caused by, uh, you know, an, an unfortunate occurrence with forest fires. But we can say we can, we're going we're to look at the people's health who are coming to Singapore uh, because you can't get a refund. Oh crap! It's it, it's raining and it's poor air quality. Can I have my money back? F one. They're not going to give that. So uh, I don't know how it would be in this, like the early part of the calendar. But I think it definitely I could definitely get behind a November date, even a late October date for Singapore. You know, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and uh, let's see. I, I I'm I'm gonna go ahead and and uh, upshift and say that it is indeed time for the Singapore GP to. People need to take a look at this because this event is just. I mean, it's cool. It looks cool on TV, and I'm sure it looks cool in person. But dude, I'm sorry. They should be in Kuala Lumpur instead. I mean, I'm sorry. That's just how I feel. We have a night race already. We have Bahrain. Bahrain is a much is a is a perfect picturesque night race. It takes place, you know, and Abu Dhabi's a night race. Yeah, Abu Dhabi's a night race as well. I mean, you have a lot of these Middle Eastern, Middle Asia countries, or I should say, uh, very very more Western Asian countries that are hosting successful Formula One events. And I understand that Singapore was far more popular than. Kuala Lumpur and that makes entirely that that makes entire sense but at the same time it just I feel like um you know it, it it's not it's not a race we need to be having anymore the racing isn't very good the air quality is terrible just the overall area is is just it, it's subpar at best it's not a place that I think that we should be sending tourists or fans or really anybody um you know and that sounds crazy because I'm saying yeah we should be sending people to Bahrain and Abu Dhabi which probably are even less tourist friendly than Malaysia, but, um, you know, still, I just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I like the race. I like seeing the race, but it, it, it's always very concerning to me when I see that gray haze. Um, it's, that just makes me concerned. Uh, but anyway, let's go ahead here and, uh, I'm going to jump ahead here real quick and let's talk a little bit about some breaking news here today. Uh, there was, uh, a, you know, Joseph Newgarden is going to be running his IndyCar on the Roval this weekend. 
All right. Uh, you know, and hey, hey, so one of the things was, and I'm kind of amending on, on the fly here, uh, one of the upshift downshift questions. And I know, Josh, you might be a little very, very confused, but just bear with me. <laughs> bear with me here. Uh, so IndyCar CEO Mark Miles walked back on his quotes that he gave IndyStar's Jimmy, Jimmy Yellow about a potential IndyCar Cup Series doubleheader. But from Andrew Adam Stern's tweet on Friday, he posted that Miles shared at his state of the sport address, we like the idea, but I felt it probably sound more negative on the idea than I meant to. People were imagining it being a lot further along than it is. Uh, how, you know, hearing that, but then also hearing that, hey, the Roval, we're running an IndyCar on the Roval. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Do you upshift or downshift on the idea of the NASCAR Cup doubleheader? Or at least just an Indy car on the Roval, Josh. That's kind of a two-parter for you. Let me hear what your answer is. Yeah. Um, let's see. Indy car on the Roval. I guess I have to see it. I mean, I just don't know uh, if they can make it work uh, with with the banking and and the high banking that they have there. I'm sure they can. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what Joseph has to say. Um, I mean, obviously, we want to see an Indy car NASCAR doubleheader. Um, and in his quote. You know, it was kind of part of my question that I was going to upshift to. I feel more confident now that it will might happen. It won't happen in 21, obviously. The schedule's already out. But I feel more confident that it might happen in 2022. Um, I upshift, obviously, the doubleheader idea, definitely, all the way. Uh, if, if, if they decide, hey, NASCAR, IndyCar, let's, let's, let's have a, a doubleheader at the Charlotte Roval. If IndyCar thinks it can work, um, let's do it. You know, it all comes down to the teams. I just don't want to. Is that the best place um, to have a double NASCAR doubleheader and IndyCar doubleheader? Um, is it is it this track the best place? I want to go to the best place. That's my whole point. What's going to give the best two races for the fans who show up and for the track and for the promotion of both sports and NBC? Because it's obviously going to happen during the NBC broadcast. It's going to happen uh, when NBC has NASCAR and obviously NBC has all of IndyCar. Um, so for that. Yeah, I think I'm upshifting to your question. I, you know, without without having to be able to read it again. But yeah, I upshift. Yeah, no, I and I, I I asked that because I thought it was very interesting to think about. You know, where would they hold it, and where would it be? I think personally, holding it at the Roval is the place to be because it's an interesting track for not just NASCAR but then also IndyCar. I mean, it's an it's two entirely different types of racing on this crazy circuit that like almost nobody would ever expect. A, a race to be held there i th- i don't know i just think it would be cool that's why i asked the question um you know for the sake that of time you. yeah you know let's like go it. ahead here and run into the rest of the best though uh because we had a good good session there on upshift and downshift I, but i think uh, it, it's good to get into the rest of the best here today uh so in indie lights renus vk won both uh races at laguna seca but oliver askew was crowned the champion and the recipient of the scholarship to race in three races in the 2020 indycar series including the indianapolis 500 Askew collected seven victories for Andretti Autosport, among them, which was a Freedom 100 at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. VK finished second in the standings for Yukos Racing. Uh, I am looking forward to seeing what Oliver Askew can do. Uh, I know I skipped over this question, but uh, it was also announced that, you know, Colton Herta is going to be a full-time in, uh, Andretti Autosport driver next season. They're pretty much merging the whole Harding Andretti Steinbretter uh, uh, team over into the Andretti stable. So now we've got Andretti Autosport. Andretti heard or Andretti, uh, Harding Steinbrenner, and then Andretti, 
Herda Autosport with Marco, which is going to be very, very confusing for some people. But uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see what uh, Andretti can, if, if Andretti does anything for Askew, which I think they should, but who knows. Um, in addition for IndyCar News this past week, uh, Takuma Sato will return to Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing in 2020. Hitachi has signed a multi-year deal with Team Penske and will continue to sponsor newly crowned champion Joseph Newgarden in eight races next season. Trevor Carlin intends to continue his two-car operation in 2020, but his exact driver lineup has not yet been confirmed. It is expected that Max Chilton and Charlie Kimball will co- continue driving in some capacity. I expect Chilton to continue racing on the road courses, but uh, with the new cockpit protection, he could go ahead and give at least Indianapolis another try. Uh, Charlie Kimball, depending on what sponsorship, you know, comes around, I think Kimball might might be in more races full-time. You know, that was the whole thing. Kimball had full-time sponsorship, but then they decided they only wanted to focus on the big markets that they were going to run him in. And But Charlie Kimball's been has been a fantastic asset to Carlin racing as has Max Chilton. So I think both of them need to return no matter what, because both of them Chilton brings money. uh, Kimball brings expertise. uh, And I think that's, that's really important for them. So, and in formula one news, 2020 driver lineups took a shape this past week. Haas F1 team surprisingly announced that Grosjean and Magnuson will be back together again next season. Who expected that? Absolutely nobody. Um, And then, uh, 2020 will be Haas's F1's fifth year competing for world championship. Uh, unfortunately, Robert Kubica announced this past week that he would not return to Williams in 2020. This allows him to explore opportunities, but he hopes to remain in F1. I'm not counting on him staying in F1 if Williams aren't gonna, if he's not returning to Williams. Uh, I I heard it a rumor that he'll probably be looking at uh, a DTM schedule, which is German sports car racing, which you know I think would be just fine for some for him. Uh, so that's all the news that we're talking about today. Uh, Josh, why don't you go ahead and get into our favorite, our favorite, favorite, favorite segment of the week, which is the featured racetrack. And I am so excited because I love this racetrack. I'm very sad to see what it has come into, but uh, you know, a lot of people are going to learn a lot about this, uh, this track today. I'm certain, especially from you. Um, and, and, and I'm just so excited to to hear what you have to say about uh, about this wonderful wonderful track that needs needs help to to keep it alive and keep it going. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, you know, I'm just going to skim the surface, and when I say skim the surface, I mean like take a thousandth off the surface of of what we what you could talk about with this track. Um, and uh, I'll mention it later, but we might. might- track uh at a, at a later date too and you know this track is not one that's far from our minds uh in from the news and discussions on the twitter sphere north wilkesboro speedway so you know it goes without saying it's most known for its nascar uh coverage and that's really well i'll, I'll talk about today uh, it had 93 nascar cup series races it hosted two rates uh, two dates a year uh except in 1949 1950 and 1957 uh, it also hosted two NASCAR convertible series races, four Xfinity series races, and two truck series races. Uh, Richard Petty was the most successful NASCAR driver here with 15 victories, and Daryl Waltrip had 10. Um, Petty Enterprises and Junior Johnson had 18 uh, victories as owners. Chevrolet had 30. Ford had 19. Plymouth had 13. Oldsmobile, 8. Dodge, 6. Buick, 5. Pontiac and Hudson each had 4. And Chrysler and Camaro each had one. So the track was originally a half mile dirt oval, 
Uh, but for 1950, the track was extended to a 5.8 Dura Oval. And once again, the track changed in between the April 1957 race and the October 1957 race. It was paved. Um, and one of the aspects of North Wilkes that made it very unique was the uphill back, uh, front stretch and the downhill back stretch. So that, I mean, that's just one of the, the cool things that made this track uh, a little more unique. You think of uh, tracks being flat or, you know, specifically flat, you know, Martinsville's fall all the way around, but nope, North Wilkesboro, a little different. Uh, so come to the highlights here, uh, you know, the points of history before I get to what I kind of really want to talk about. So in NASCAR's uh, first trip to North Wilkesboro in 1954, Dick Rathman blew a tire with three laps to go, and it was the leader. And he still won the race over Herb Thomas and Joe Eubanks. Uh, both those guys got their laps back and finished on the lead lap uh, to uh, but 20 seconds behind Rathman. Uh, Junior Johnson won his first of four races at Speedway soon after his release from a federal penitentiary in Ohio on a moonshine conviction in May of 1958. Uh, he was swept both races in 1958 at North Wilkesboro. Uh, Cale Yarbrough became the first points-paying winner to win on his birthday in the Gwen Staley 400 on March 27, 1977. He led 320 of 400 laps, and his margin of victory over Richard Petty was 6.4 seconds. On April 18, 1982, Bobby Hillen Jr. became and remains the youngest driver to ever start a NASCAR Cup race. He was 17. This is, of course, not possible today. Uh, and it, this kind of originated back in 1998 when the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement, which Winston's R.J. Reynolds signed, uh, mandated that participants must be 18 years of age. Uh, obviously, you have to be uh, 18 years of age to buy tobacco products. They wanted the tobacco-sponsored series to have a minimum age of 18. Uh, North Wilkesboro uh, is the last track where a winner lapped the entire field, and it's actually probably more recent than you think. Jeffrey Bodine, driving his own number seven, Exide Batteries Ford, started 18th and led 334 of the 400 laps on October 2nd, 1994. That was the Tyson Holly Farms 400. Second place, Terry Labonte, was one lap down uh, at races end, so he didn't lap. Not too too bad, but everyone was at least one lap down. Rick Mast, Rusty Wallace, and Mark Martin rounded out the top five. The race uh, did have four cautions, though. So even in even with four cautions for twenty five laps, he still was able to lap the entire field at least once. Uh, and the other interesting little note from that race: Dale Jarrett, driving the number eighteen for Joe Gibbs Racing, failed to qualify for that race. Um. And what I kind of really want to talk about, what really hit hard today, is I'm sure we're all a little familiar with the demise of uh, North Wilkesboro. And I'm going to give credit uh, ahead of time, and I'm sure I'll say it again later, to Jerry, uh, Jeremy Markovich in his article, Ghosts of North Wilkesboro, which you can find on SB Nation uh, for really helping out with this today. Um, that's where I got a lot of this really interesting information to share with you. Um, so with uh, the demise, you know, NASCAR is moving fast. And uh was rising to the national scene and, and new facilities were being built and even when it was when it would close finally in 1996 it was kind of still stuck in the 1980s and it was throwback before it was cool um so uh like i mentioned new tracks being built and it only had 60,000 seats and in in this article um it even said that uh the four phones that were in the press box three of them were still rotary phones in the early 1990s that's pretty sh- shocking 
uh, this is show the level of uh, renovation and, and update. Uh, so parking was a pain and traffic was often backed up for miles, leaving the track. The, you know, the, the layout and the road conditions were not great. Uh, hotel rooms were scarce and difficult to find. Uh, on top of that, North Wilkesboro also had one of the lowest purses in NASCAR, if not the lowest purse at the time. So drivers and teams didn't, you know, didn't want to bang up their cars too bad at, at, at the time at North Wilkesboro. Um, Mike Staley, son of former track owner Enoch Staley, uh, told SB Nation uh, that uh, as long as his family was involved with North Wilkesboro, he believed that North Wilkesboro would have been on the NASCAR schedule. Um, and Bill France Jr. was even kind of a supportive of that uh, because he even asked uh, Enoch Staley one time, hey, can you operate with only one date? And Staley said no. And the story goes, Bill, Bill France Jr. never asked again um, if he could uh, lose a date. Um, and it also didn't hurt that Staley was also on NASCAR's payroll with offices in Daytona and Talladega. Uh, things changed for the Speedway once Enoch Staley died, though, in 1995. Bruton Smith came to North Wilkesboro to see co-owner of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Speedway, Jack Coombs, to see if he would sell his share of the Speedway. Now, they were 50-50 partners, uh, Jack Coombs and Enoch Staley. Uh, Jack's son, Dean, told SB Nation uh, that Smith showed his father a picture of what his dream track, Texas Motor Speedway, was going to look like. Uh, and at the time, Bill France Jr. and NASCAR set a cap of 32 cup races a year. Um, and the only way you could get a date was if you basically bought a date. Uh, so uh, he eventually bought Coombs' share of the Speedway for $6 million. Uh, then. The then track owner of New Hampshire uh, International Speedway, Bob Bear, traveled to North Wilkesboro to speak with the, Stale the Staleys on selling their share because he was interested in having a second uh, Winston Cup date at his track. Uh, Mike Staley had already met Bruton Smith and knew he would not be able to work with him as a partner. You know, he, he basically said that, you know, this guy's a millionaire and I'm not. And this is the, atti this is the attitude of, of Bruton Smith. They weren't going to be able to work together. And, uh, Staley's uh, Mike Staley's mom didn't want to sell to Smith, so when Bear Bear was kind of able to buy it from them for eight million dollars, uh, he said he'd been, "I'll buy the track, I'll give it back to you, um, and you can operate some bush and some truck races." Obviously, that did not happen. Um, so it, it, after Bear had bought his share, they uh, him and Bruton Smith both went to Bill French Jr. in January of 1996, and Bill French Jr. agreed to move North Wilkesboro's two dates to Texas Motor Speedway and New Hampshire International Speedway in 1997. So obviously that meant the two dates in 1996 were going to be the final ones. Jeff Gordon would win uh, the 93rd and final race, the Tyson Holly Farmers 400 on September 29th, 1996. Uh, his only win at the track. And just like that, the 47 years of history at the Speedway was gone. Sheriff's deputies even told Bruton Smith to stay away as they could not guarantee his safety. People in North Wilkesboro, even today, do not like that name. You don't say it. You don't talk about it. Um, eventually, though, as I said, you know, they didn't, they never, the track never got back to Staley's hands. Uh, Bill Bear was, would, sold his New Hampshire International Speedway, now the New Hampshire Motor Speedway, uh, in his share of North Wilkesboro to Bruton Smith in 2007. Um, and, and a big reason was that he wanted to get out of the game and, they never could agree on anything when it came to North Wilkesboro, so he sold. Um, the track does have one employee, though. His name's Paul. Uh, he made a deal with the 
with Bear and Smith at the time that if he could still live in his trailer next to the ticket office, he would watch over the place. Um, I thought that was pretty unique, did not know that. Um, if you read the SB Nation article, you, you'll hear some pretty cool stories um, that I, won't, I don't have time to discuss today. Um, what has happened at North Wilkesboro since its closure with Paul. Um, as mentioned a few weeks ago with Okanichi Speedway, North Wilkesboro was part of the inspiration for the fictional Thomasville Speedway in Pixar's Cars 3 in 2017. Um, so that, that's all I'm going to talk about. There's so much more. Again, this is skimming the surface, and, and that's a really brief summary of, of how it, you know, did, the, the demise of North Wilkesboro as we know it. Um, it, it keeps making history, though. Uh, there's There was racing if, about 10 years ago there. Uh, that might be what we talk, talk about the next time. Um, if you want to uh, keep following up with, with the Speedway, there is a uh, Save the Speedway group, and you can follow them on Twitter at Save the Speedway. Um, there's a lot of fan conversations in history. They often retweet stuff about anti-North Wilkesboro is mentioned. Um, and Dale Jr. right now, Yes, the Dale Earnhardt Jr. is trying to get a, a grass cutting and weed whacking day set up at the Speedway so iRacing can come in and scan the track uh, to help preserve it digitally uh, in case one day it just never does see action again. Um, and and I, I want to say, I, I do want to see North Wilkesboro return to racing. I, I think it's the problem is it's, you could rebuild the track and you can. Uh, make it all nice again. But the problem is the other amenities around it, the hotels, the roads. Um, I think 421 has been updated, I believe, since uh, the, the closure there. But I went there a few years ago, drove past there, sort of, quote, paid my respects and and took it all in. Um, it, the roads around there are, are not that great. So it's, it's more of an interest, infrastructure surrounding the track more than anything. I want to see it return if it could be even just regional racing like the Cars Tour or or the Canyon East or ARCA. I think that'd be great. So like I mentioned before, um, Ghosts of North Wilkesboro, the article by Jerry Markovich on SB Nation is a primary source for today's featured racetrack. Rob, you got anything to say? I mean, I love I loved hearing all that. I mean, I it, it's sad. I still think that the demise of North Wilkesboro Speedway is one of the saddest stories, I think. One of the saddest stories simply in NASCAR is just how such a popular track ended up just becoming nothing. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, it, it's almost it's not it's almost as sad as Riverside. It's it's almost as sad as Ontario place, things like that. Um, you know, and I miss them. I miss it a lot. I, I love North Wilkesboro. I thought it was really, really entertaining track. You know, I've driven it, you know, obviously in simulators. I'd love to see Dale Jr. get get uh, get the weed whacking guys out and get iRacing to scan it there because I'd love to to see a real life true to scan feel of 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 uh North Wilkesboro someday because you know I love I love sim racing and and one of the thi- one of the tracks that I've, I I love to sim race on is North Wilkesboro. Um you know I have I, a number of uh you know fantasy kind of tracks that have been modeled after after the uh NASCAR Racing 2 track that was included um and and that that's just such a good good race track it's such a you know it's a place i'd like to go see but i'd like to see it in better condition i do remember when they brought racing back there i think it was in 2010 you said about 10 years ago i remember when they brought racing back there if you look at some of the guys that made their starts there like chase elliott i believe chase elliott won that race yeah he won the race i mean it it, 
stars of tomorrow, stars of NASCAR's tomorrow were there at North Wilkesboro back then. And, and it's really, really interesting to see uh, just what the track has turned into. Um, and I hope that, I hope that it can get, get uh, revitalized someday. I know that the likelihood that, you know, that's going to happen is very small, but they said the same thing about Rockingham. They said Rockingham would never see NASCAR racing again. And, and, and that changed. Uh, and, and I think in this case situation, I think like what you said, if the if there can be more of an investment on infrastructure, I think if you build it, they will come. That's that's the way I see it. I think if it was a popular race back then, and it's still a popular event now that people want to get out and go see, I think that plenty of people would would make the trek, especially if it hosted, you know, another truck race like it did actually back in the day when it was a big deal and they hosted truck races. I think it could be a very successful truck racing event. So oh yeah, and and I think. You know, the push is there. We say more short track. I think this is the one where, you know, if you want to get a short track in the southeast, it's going to be Nashville. And the problem is, you know, the Smith family and SMI. Well, you know, it's really just SMI now. You know, own it. They own it still. Um, and I think the neat thing is, you know, Dale Jr. Uh, was actually talking. If you listen to his download, I forget which episode it was now, but he talked about how, um, you know, he had actually a discussion with Bruton Smith, and Bruton Smith was open to the idea of them scanning it. And I think he even volunteered to go out there and help weed whack stuff um, around the track to, to, to allow it to be preserved digitally. Um, I think if it would, the money is the big deal here. If you could have a commitment from a series to say, yep, yeah, we will be there. I think that you could get a, you could get at least it fixed up, but if you don't get a commitment from the cup series and it says, yep, we're going to go to North Wilkesboro in 2024. I don't think you're going to get any, 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 traction on it moving and i think uh they're open to selling it if the money's right if they meet the right buyer but so far that hasn't shown up yet and it is really sad um and like i think he was the first victim of nascar's national rise um because it was the first it was the first track in nascar's breadbasket in in the modern era to get scrapped and yeah. uh, that that is that is very sad um, I wish we still had it in North and North Carolina, both still. Um, so Rob, that's all I got today, man. Uh, what's coming up for us uh, in, in the, what's in the windshield? Yeah. Let's take a look at what's in the windshield for next week. So the NTT IndyCar season is over, but uh, Hey, don't worry about it. Uh, we still got NASCAR and formula one going. Uh, there's going to be a lot of races that those guys going to have. Hey, we still got two ARCA races left too. Uh, there's still a lot of racing left. There's still a lot of racing left so far in this season. So uh, we've got uh, the World Championship returns. The Formula One World Championship returns to Sochi for the Russian Grand Prix, where Mercedes has reigned king. Lewis Hamilton has three victories in the five races held uh, at Sochi, uh, at the Sochi Autodrome since its introduction to the F1 calendar in 2014. That race is on Sunday. For the second time, NASCAR teams make the short trip to Charlotte Motor Speedway in 2019 for the and for the second time in history, it's the Roval. Oh, thank goodness! One of my favorite races of the season. One, honestly, I love the Roval. Have I mentioned how much I love the Roval? The elevation changes on the infield section are just incredible. Like the Roval in and of itself is a beautiful, beautiful infield section. It is, and then you get yeah. to the actual. Uh, it they did a great job. And they did a fantastic job. It's one of those it. races that surprised me. I was critical of it before. Uh, when it first came out and it was first announced, but I was glad I was pleasantly, I was glad I had to eat crow. I was glad I had to eat. Crow. <laughs> no, I, I totally and hundred percent agree. Um, and so we've got, uh, with a modified backstretch chicane, which I think should be a lot safer and probably allow for, a, a, an extra passing zone. 
This year's drive for the Kira 250 at Bank of America and the Bank of America Roval 400 will yet again be a new twist for the entire field, but especially for playoff contenders. The Xfinity Series race is not a cutoff race, but the Cup Series race is a cutoff race. And the Xfinity Series race has been lengthened from 55 to 67 laps. Uh, so 109 laps on Sunday. Seven drivers are within 18th points of each other. And, uh, you know, it's there's there's really no other way to say it other than this is going to be an exciting race, hopefully. And uh, we're going to see a lot of fun, fun racing on at the Charlotte Roval. Uh, I'm excited for it. I love that little road infield road course. I love those elevation changes so much. Uh, it's just such a technical track and it's such a, it's such a challenging track for drivers and teams because it's really one of those things where how do we manage this? You know, how do we set this car up? Do we set it up for, uh, an oval? Do we set it up to turn better? I mean, obviously you want to load the, as much negative camber in there as you probably can in order to get that thing to, to, uh, to turn as better as it best as it possibly can. So big, big race week, race weekend. And I'm, I'm super excited for it. I'm excited about it too, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, um, I, 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 I was, did, did you see the promo for Michael Rooker that yeah, Michael yeah. Rooker did? Okay. When he said that Charlotte Roval sounds like a French actress, that was great. I'm like, but I think it's more, sounds more like a nightmare in French. Yeah. I think that's French for nightmare because I do not, like, like we've mentioned it before, Eric Jones, these guys, I do not want to be, I'd rather be a non-playoff right now and just have to go out there and race. Yeah. Missing the playoffs, nightmare. honestly, sounds like it's a much better situation to be in you just go out there and run your own race and maybe yeah. win yeah who exactly knows? Who knows? might win you might lose who knows yeah uh, anyway that is it for us today i'm so glad that everybody was able to tune in and uh, listen to our our beautiful podcast thank you so much for this uh our, this is our first real trial run of doing a podcast uh on location really and from separate locations using discord and everything we hope that uh everything worked out just fine everything uh, you know, you guys didn't have any issues. If you do have any issues, don't forget you could tweet us at the show at Robin Roller and tweet at us individually. I am at R P E E T E R S three three, and he is Josh, or excuse me, at Roller underscore zero one R O L L E R zero one. Uh, we really appreciate you guys tuning in today. Uh, we're really thankful for it, and uh, we're looking forward to to next week. So with that being said, that is everything. Thank you so much for listening today. This was the Racing with Rob and Roller podcast.